Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Rhodes Fellows and pick students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they're living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm reporting this week from my car as I travel from Washington to New York. And here are this week's fellows. I'm Mania Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. I'm Kyla Wright from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. I'm Paul Holston from Howard University in Washington, D.C. I'm Don Dooley from North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. So, everybody, you know, um, we have a, a tremendous uh, and a very special guest, a friend and a colleague who you've seen uh, every week at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Our guest is the great Stephen A. Smith. Hey, hey, Stephen, how you doing, man? Welcome, uh... Welcome to the show, man. I know I know you need no introduction. Stephen A. is, um, I'd say right now, probably the most prominent sports journalist uh, on TV, and um, he, you see him at uh, you see him at first take. Uh, but he's got a very, very, very deep and rich, uh, rich, rich history as a print journalist from Philadelphia, uh, New York, um, and the most important thing is that. He's from Winston-Salem State University, HBCU, like everybody on this call. Hey, Stephen A., man, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. How y'all doing? Hey, hey Stephen, we, we've been prepping for this call for quite a while. Everybody's excited to hear a lot about, you know, your journey and all that. But we wanted to start kind of front and center with what's on everybody's mind now, which is the NBA playoffs. Based on sort of your, your deep history of covering playoffs and commenting on after two, after the first round and a half, what's your take on the uh, on the playoffs? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Um, if you're interested in suspense as it pertains to the overall point of view, uh, it, it, it wasn't that compelling to me simply because it's a foregone conclusion that Golden State will meet Cleveland for the NBA Finals, a trilogy of sorts, considering the fact that they've met against each other the last two years. Barring any injury, that's exactly what's going to happen. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Utah versus the Clippers was an interesting series. Toronto with the Greek Freak uh, going up against the Greek Freak in Milwaukee was interesting. Isaiah Thomas and the Boston Celtics taking out Chicago was relatively compelling. Their first two games, first three games against Washington was very compelling, particularly game two when Isaiah Thomas dropped 53 on the Wizards. And so when you look at uh, just a bevy of games that have taken place, Memphis and San Antonio was interesting, particularly the first four games. Um, to get the playoffs overall have been interesting and compelling. If you're looking at it from a micro perspective, game by game, opponent by opponent. But if you're looking at it from a macro perspective, there's no intrigue involved because you know that it's coming down to Cleveland and Golden State, barring injury. <laughs> All right. Paul, Paul Hosen of Howard. That's sort of a, a, a Washington, D.C. Uh, Wizards question for you. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey, Stephen A. This is Paul at Howard. So I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, right now, and I know the NBA playoffs are heating off. And I know you've been critical of the Washington Wizards, of course. Um, they'll be playing until the Celtics into next week. How do you see that matchup actually um, ending as as the series continues? 
Well, first of all, I, months ago, I predicted that the Washington Wizards are going to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, mm-hmm. And any criticism that I've aimed in their direction uh, emanated from the first two games, where game one, uh, they couldn't hold the lead. Game two, they, you know, they had a 17-point lead in game one and, and lost it. Game two, they went into overtime and lost, and Isaiah Thomas dropped 53 on them. And what I said about them is that they had to man up and step up. You got John Wall, he's a star, <clears throat> trying to elevate himself to superstar status. He drops 40 and 13. But Bradley Beal, who got paid $128 million in the offseason, decides to pick that time not to show up. And then not only that, you're Scott Brooks. You're the five-year, $35 million man. You don't have a championship on your resume, but you're getting paid like a champion because championship-caliber coaches are the ones that are getting $7 million and up to be head coaches in the NBA. That's what he got. And somehow, some way, you got Isaiah Thomas killing you on offense, but defensively, you're not even making him work because you're allowing Boston coach Brad Stevens to hide him in the corner on the weak side against opposing offensive players, and they're not moving. They're just standing in the corner, and Isaiah Thomas is standing there with them, and nobody's challenging him to step up and defend. And as a result, Hmm he's able to have his energy and save his energy for the offensive side of the ball where he's able to kill you. Now, in game three yesterday, they worked him. And they not only limited him to eight shots by trapping him and doubling him and forcing him to give up the ball, but they worked him on the defensive side of the ball because they gave the ball to the man he was guarding and made him defend them. And he was a liability because he's only five feet nine. So those are the mm-hmm. kind of things that you want to monitor and watch out for. If Washington continues to do that, they will win this series like I predicted. If they don't do that, they will lose. Plain and simple to me. Right. Stephen, now you talk about um, Coach Scott Brooks. Um, do you feel like his job going forward with Washington is is um, solidified at this point, especially with his struggles in game two, like you said, of not trapping Isaiah Thomas and letting him score as pretty three? If you invest $35 million in somebody, they ain't going nowhere anytime soon because you yeah. stuck paying them. So understand what I said. He got five years, $35 million. It's guaranteed. He ain't going nowhere because he made a mistake in a playoff game. He's going to be around for a little while. Uh, hi, this is uh, Isaiah from uh, Morehouse College. Uh, you talked about the foregoing – foregone conclusion of having the Warriors and Cavs. Do you think having that foregone conclusion is good or bad for the NBA? Well, I think I think it's good from the perspective of it being the Warriors and Cavaliers. I, I think it's bad because Kevin Durant went to the Warriors. Kevin Durant was on the Oklahoma City Thunder. They came within 48 minutes of going to an NBA Finals last year against this Golden State Warriors team. Kevin Durant decided that he would not only depart from Oklahoma City, but go to the very team that beat them in a Western Conference Finals. And being the fact that he's a superstar in this game, that dramatically shifted the balance of power within a Western Conference. It robbed us of any suspense because he didn't go to a team on a come-up. He left and departed for a team that went 73-9 and and broke an all-time single-season record last year. And so he went to the juggernaut. And he was already a juggernaut in and of himself. So it's it's a foregone conclusion. Nobody in in, in the Western Conference is going to beat 
the Golden State Warriors, barring injury. The only team that has a shot in the entire NBA of taking them down is a team with the best player in the world. That's the Cleveland Cavaliers because of LeBron James. It's just that mm-hmm. simple. Hey, hey Stephen, hey, uh, this is uh, Bill. Uh, I, I, we were having a discussion the other night, uh, and Kyla Wright at Hampton uh, brought up a very interesting point uh, uh, about sort of your your background and, uh, and, and and basketball and how it informed something. Hey, Kyla, why don't you why don't you ask Stephen what we are talking about? Um, so my question was um, basically, so I know that you played basketball when you were at Winston Salem, and um, you know, I just really wanted to know what do you think about MVP awards in team sports? Like, should they stop? Are they overrated? You know, what's the purpose of them? No, they have they they have its value, and I think it's important that it stays. Like for example, you have some people that are advocates of waiting until the finals are over to crown MVPs and things of that nature. I don't agree with that. I think as long as you're separating the regular season from the postseason, you're just fine. Because what you're saying is that that 82 games where you charge people to patronize your product, where the television networks put these games on the air, you're reminding folks that it means something, that it matters, to strip the potency and the importance of those awards, to try and couple it with the postseason to not separate it from the postseason and try to lump it all together. You're doing a disservice to the fans, and more importantly, you're doing a disservice to the athletes that go out there and show up and, 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 you know, and perform for those 82 games. The last thing you want to do is provide people with a disincentive to prioritize those games between the months of November and mid-April. Because if you do so, that's going to give them even more of an excuse to take more time off from work than they already take off. And you certainly don't want to do that while the paying customer is still being charged. Hi, this is Mania from Grambling. I was wondering, what has been the most compelling storyline of the playoffs? Interesting. Um, I would say right now the most compelling storyline has been Isaiah Thomas and how sensational he has been um, in his performance, particularly in the aftermath of his sister dying in that single accident, you know, that single car accident where she was killed in Sister China at the age of 22 years of age. Um, she definitely uh, has been a very, very compelling story because you wouldn't wish what he's enduring on anybody. And for him not to have missed the game, to have flown across country to see his family, then to come back, then to go back for the funeral, then to come back, and then to have to play on her birthday a week later, and dropped 53 on her birthday. I don't think there's any question that's been the most compelling story during the playoffs at this moment in time. Mm. Hey, Stephen. Hey, this is Paula Howard. Um, in, in lieu of compelling storylines, um, from your take, what is the hottest story right now in sports, and how do you determine um, what is a hot story, and how do you lead with it with your show at for, on first take? Well, first of all, it's day-to-day. It's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, uh, the stories, there's no particular hot story. It varies from day to day. You know, I just brought up Isaiah Thomas. You know, last night's performance, the story was Oubre getting ejected after shoving Cody Olenek down to the ground. Uh, a week earlier or a few days earlier, it was uh, Roger Goodell uh, advocating or not advocating, being against the advocation of marijuana used by NFL players. Uh, so it varies. 
Um, and in terms of how I decide what a story is, my journalistic training, <clears throat> knowing what a story is, paying attention to what's resonating with the listening and viewing and reading public, all of those things uh, factor into the equation because if people are not interested in it, then it ain't a story. Um, unless you're in news, for example, like it doesn't matter whether people are interested in it or not. If the president, Donald Trump, decides that he's going to bomb North Korea, you're going to have a lot of people that may not care, but damn it, they should. And that makes it a very profound story because that's news related. But with most other things, particularly pop culture um, and sports, sometimes the interest determines the significance of a particular story based on how folks are following it. If folks ain't interested in it, it ain't that damn compelling. <laughs> where, where, where do you rank in that? In that sense, see, this is uh, Bill. How did you rank the Adam Jones story? I mean, some stories are, like you just said, are fascinating because they're 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 just sensational. Others because they sort of have deep roots in cultural and the sort of fabric of the country. Where, where, how, how did you approach the Adam Jones story? And where do you? Where would you rank that in terms of hotness? Well, that's definitely up there in terms of popular stories for the week, no doubt. Um, and from a cultural perspective, considering, you know, history, the city of Boston, the use of the N-word, desegregation, busing, all of these things, that has a profound impact, impact on the emotional psyche of our nation, particularly uh, not just in the world of news but in the world of sports. So on one particular day, however, that may have been the number one story. On another day, it may have been the third story, because ultimately the N-word, the use of it, racism, prejudices, and all of that stuff is pertinent and poignant and relevant as it is. At the same time, it's also predictable in terms of the absence of it being a surprise, people's reactions towards it, et cetera, et cetera. Does it have that shock value? In most instances, the answer is no, because even in this day and age, you still anticipate it will be there. That dissipates it in the mind's eye in terms of being a quote-unquote number one news story. This is Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College. Just, just switching gears a little bit. Um, you've had LeVar Ball on first take a few times. Uh, if Lonzo becomes a superstar, do you think we'll see more parents boldly trying to capitalize on their children's athletic talents? I'm sure he is. He's made he's made that very clear. That's what his intent is, and he's not he's he's non apologetic about it. Um, and I, I I I don't agree with how he's doing it. I certainly wouldn't do that with my child. But at the same time, I applaud his honesty in regard to that. What he is saying is, and what he is proclaiming, is that before these kids even graduate from high school, whether it be sneaker companies, NCAA institutions or whatever businesses you want to point to. Everyone is always quick to exploit these kids. How are you going to knock me for taking advantage of my own son's talent, especially if it stands to benefit him as well as his entire family? When he makes that argument, it's pretty damn hard to argue against it. Again, I don't like it. I certainly wouldn't do it. Um, I think that puts a boatload of pressure on his son and it's basically asking his son to cash checks, you know, that you know, to to to, to provide checks that you know his daddy can't cash, and so it, it makes it very very tough. 
I feel bad for him, uh, but at the same time, I do understand his father's mentality, but I still totally disagree with it. Yeah, do you like him? Do you like him personally? Do you like him personally, Steve? I do. I, do. I, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's outspoken. Um, I think he's a, he's obviously loquacious. Um, he's a bit eccentric, to say the least, bombastic, all of those things. But he's not a bad person. I don't think that he has a malicious bone in his body, and I don't think he means to hurt anybody, including his son. Unfortunately, I truly believe in my heart he simply doesn't know any better, and he's the kind of person, based on my experiences with him, that it's very difficult to tell him something. He's one of those guys who believes he has the answers, and I think he's going to have to find out the hard way that he doesn't. Stephen A., this is Donovan from A&T. Um, do you, feel, you talked about the pressure that's going to be on Lonzo from his father. Do you, where do you project Lonzo being in the, in the NBA? Do you project him as a future all-star, a role player? What do you project, project him as? And I, I can't answer that question yet. I think his jump shot is ugly. Um, I think he's got skills, but I think he needs to put significant weight on his body. He's frail thin. Um, his jump shot is ugly. He shoots it at the top of his forehead, which makes it easier to block. Um, I'm not sold. I know he can play. He's no scrub. And the star used to LA, he deserves credit for that. But I watched DeAndre Fox in Kentucky give it to him. And they, they really bust his butt. And they ain't in the NBA yet. So what you going to do on this level? It remains to be seen. I believe in him. Um, I hope that he does well. I'm certainly rooting for him and his dad but I really, really, really don't know. And it also depends on where he gets drafted and who he gets drafted by. He'd make a lot of noise if he was playing on San Antonio. He'd even make some noise if he were playing on Minnesota with Andrew Wiggins, Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns. But if he goes on the Lakers, who's there to give the ball to? Who's there to make things happen with? There's a lot of question marks about where he lands and what kind of impact he's going to have because of it. Right. Uh, this is Isaiah Smalls uh, at Morales. I do agree with you uh, in terms of if he goes to the Lakers, because personally I feel like the Lakers wouldn't be able to hide his uh, defensive inefficiency because we saw, like you said, uh, when they played Kentucky, De'Aaron Fox lit him up. And the Lakers already are not a good defensive team, and I feel like they'll get much worse with uh, Lonzo on the floor. <clears throat> But what about Boston, though? Because when you talk about Boston, they might have a top three projected pick this year, and they might move, be able to move Isaiah to the two and play Lonzo at the one. Would, you, would he be more effective up there? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't handpick particular teams. I mentioned the Lakers because the Lakers obviously is a team that would entertain taking them number one overall because they love the fact that he is an individual that, that is from that, uh, uh, that, that area, and he started UCLA. Others may, may decide to go in a different direction. Josh Jackson, DeAndre Fox, uh, this kid Markel Fultz out of Washington. Uh, you know, you, you, the list goes on and on, so we don't know. But all I'm trying to say is that, generically speaking, he needs to be in a situation where he's not going to be the primary focal point because I don't know if he has the physicality or the overall game to withstand the heat that's going to be brought to bear against him. His father has put a huge bullseye on his back. And the shocking part about all of this is that you haven't heard anything from the mom because usually you would hear from the mom in a particular situation as it pertains to the pressure of the, the father is placing on the son, but she has been conspicuously quiet in all of this. 
Right. Hey, Steve, hey, Steve you know, we could, uh, we could talk playoffs forever, but one of the things that um, uh, when we knew that you were going to come on the show, uh, you know, these are you know, six really bright young people from six HBCUs. And one of the things I want to, to have you talk to them about, um, and I, I stress the fact that although they've seen you uh, on ESPN, and I think some of them were probably just born <laughs> like in third grade or something when, uh, you know, but you've got a very deep and rich, rich history in journalism, print journalism, and you've done a lot. So I wanted you to um, just talk, talk about, about the journey, man. I mean, you know, how, how you uh, went from, from, from Queens to Winston-Salem to the Journal to the New. I mean, just, just, just your, 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 um, your goal. We talked a little bit about this when you got inducted to the CIAA Hall of Fame. But just uh, as a snapshot, just your journey, man. Just, just um, uh, how did you get where you are? And did you, is, is this the life and the career you envisioned for yourself when you're sitting in the classroom in Winston-Salem State? Well, um, you know, coming from Hollis, Queens, got left back in the third grade because I had a first-grade reading level. I had dyslexia, didn't know it. Uh, went to summer school, got promoted back to my right grade, turned around, uh, which was the fourth grade, completed the fourth grade, and then got left back again because I still had a first-grade reading level. Um, at that point forward, I dedicated my life to never being laughed at again because I was an idiot because that's what my friends called me and people in the neighborhood called me because it was a very, very embarrassing time. And so I buried my head into my books, making sure that I did what I could to study and be cogent and speak fluidly and things of that nature. And, um, you know, ever since that time, I graduated with honors. Um, when I went to college, I was, I was in high, high school at Thomas Edison vocational technical high school studying electrical installation, but I had stupidly told my mother that I would never go to college because I didn't want to. And she said, if you're not going to go to college, then you're going to learn to trade because you're not going to be an idiot. You're going to learn how to do something with your hands. And I didn't count on the fact that I would play basketball and love it so much that I would ultimately get a basketball scholarship and that I, w I would end up going to college. Um, the first order of business was at Fashion Institute of Technology, which is junior college. Um, but the thing about it is we were a junior college, but we were 35 and 4 and ranked 15th in the nation. And so I went from there, and I went to Winston-Salem State. When I was at Winston-Salem State, I cracked my kneecap in half playing basketball in practice. Um, my kneecap split when I went up for a layup, split in half. So I had to have reconstructive mm -hmm. surgery. Uh, it messed up my career. It was never going to be the same again. They told me I probably would never walk straight again. Um, and then I had to make a decision about what I was going to do with my life. And I told my mother that I wanted to go on the television. But I didn't trust it because you could just smile and read a prompter. And I wasn't that kind of dude. I didn't think that that would be sustainable. So I decided that I wanted to write for the school newspaper because if I knew how to write and report, then that was a sustainability a factor that would work in my favor because I had substance and content to me. And then I did that, and sure enough, my persuasive uh, writing class professor was a guy by the name of John Gates who taught that class at Winston-Salem, but he was also the editorial page editor for the local newspaper, the Winston-Salem Journal. 
Um, he read my essay, called me a born sports writer, and said to me, do you have some time so I can take you out to lunch uh, this next week? It was a Tuesday. And I said, fine. So I met him that following Tuesday. I thought he was taking me out to eat. He took me straight to the Winston-Salem Journal where the sports editor for the Winston-Salem Journal was waiting for me. The sports editor's name was Terry Oberly. He sat down with me for five minutes, and he says, you got a busy schedule because you're on a basketball scholarship and you're taking 18 credits semester hours. Do you have the time to work at this newspaper as a clerk? I said, absolutely. He said, good, because you're hired. Can you start tonight? <laughs> he hired me on the spot. He hired me on the spot as a clerk. I was the only black guy in the entire sports department. Um, when that happened, uh, all the white editors, Steve Mann, Phil Rishak, Dan Lohman, um, all of these guys, uh, they just gravitated to me. They, they had a lot of love for my work ethic, and individually, single-handedly, they taught me how to write for newspapers, showed me what I was doing wrong, Whatever. It wasn't a tabloid. It was a broadsheet. It was a broadsheet. So that inverted pyramid theory and the who, what, when, where, why, and how came into effect and how you placed stuff in a story, they literally showed me. And Terry Oberly had enough confidence that he sent me out to write a feature on Wake Forest soccer. They were ranked number three in the nation at the time. The coach's name was Walt Chiswick, who's now deceased from cancer. God rest his soul. And I walked up to him and told him, I know nothing about soccer, but this story is very important to me because if I do it right, they're going to make me, they're going to they're gonna let me write more, and I want to be a sports writer. Walt Chiswick called the whole Wake Forest soccer team over and said to them, whatever he wants for the next three days, give it to him. He gave me complete unadulterated access and let me stand there and, follow, and, and, and be at every practice and literally in three days taught me the game of soccer because I had never watched soccer before other than the 1980 Olympics with Pele. I went, I went back to the newspaper. I turned in a story that Friday. It became a big two-page pull-out end zone piece in Sunday's paper. That Monday, Terry Overly called me into his office, congratulated me for the piece, and then shook my hand and said, congratulations, you are the new beat writer for Wake Forest Soccer. And wow. from that point forward, from that, from that point forward, I covered the team wherever they went. I accumulated clips. I did internships with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, with the Winston-Salem Journal. And there was also a tutoring class that I would take with a tutor in Kernersville, North Carolina. And she only charged me $5 an hour. I thought it was because she liked me. About six months in, after being tutored by her on how to write better, I found out that it wasn't $5 at all. It was 55 but that the managing mm. editor for the, but that the managing editor for the newspaper, his name was Joe Goodman. They, he liked me so much along with the sports staff that they were paying the other $45 an hour for me to be tutored. Wow. And I didn't even know. Wow. And so, wow. so when that happened, so when that happened, um, you know, it was, it was, it was incredibly generous on their part. And so everything that I did from the New York Daily News to the Philadelphia Inquirer and beyond, 
I always give a debt of gratitude to those people because of the kindness and the generosity that they exchanged towards me. I can never forget it as long as I live. This is Mania from Grambling. You talked a little bit about your college experience, but I wanted to know more. You said that you went to the Fashion Institute of Technology Junior College, and then you went to Winsome-Salem State on a basketball scholarship. I'm curious, what did you study at FIT, and do you believe that going to an HBCU helped you or, or hurt you, or what was your experience there? Well, I went to I went to uh, FIT um, because um, I um, I studied advertising and communications. But I just went there, to be quite honest with you, because I was trying to get myself, you know, on another level basketball-wise so I can earn a full scholarship. That's what I was trying to do. And um, I ended up doing it. You know, I was fortunate enough and blessed enough to do it successfully. Um, that's, that's basically what happened. Um, okay. It's just that simple. When I went to an HBCU, it's because Coach Gaines came calling, giving me a basketball scholarship, and he's a living legend. Um, and I transferred my major into mass communications, but it just so happened that I lucked up because I had always planned on being in communications to begin with. That was my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And so going to an HBCU is the greatest years of my life because I was around my own. Um, it felt like family, and I felt like um, I, I wasn't constantly stacked up against the odds. I was incentivized to produce and to be something special uh, because I had people around me who genuinely believed in me and placed faith in me from uh, Robert Devon, who's now deceased, who was the head of the telecommunications department. And I did an internship with him on campus to uh, Theodore Heinzman, who was the head of financial aid to a woman that I call my second mom in Maryland, Roseboro, who was a professor uh, there um, in political, uh, you know, in journalism and mass communications um, at Winston-Salem State, uh, Dr. Sadler, uh, who, who taught mass communications class as well. Um, I just can't say enough. They were, they were like family. They really, really were. Mm-hmm. Hey, Steve, hey, um, I know we only got a few more, more uh, uh, moments with you. I know the students want to ask you, the fellows want to ask you a lot of stuff just about where you are today. One of the things that um, I've always admired about you is just uh, your fight. Uh, well, two things, your fight, and you always had sort of a sense of vision that you knew as much as you were entrenched in print journalism, you were one of the first to really see that the way to go was television, sports TV, owning your own show. Um, how did you How did you make that how did you know it was time to make that that switch? Um, you know, from well, for me, for me, for me, it really wasn't that complicated. Um, the newspaper industry was fading. We all knew it. The advent of talk radio was continuing to grow. Television was a visual medium, so you always knew there was an elevated level of popularity that that would have compared to everything else. And it was really that simple um, for me. The best way to answer that question is in 2001, I was covering the 76ers. When I was covering the 76ers, they were making a run to the NBA Finals. I was covering Allen Iverson and those guys. And I was breaking stories all the time. I was breaking stories all the time. And so what happened is, is that even though I was breaking those stories, 
what I remembered most was that somehow, some way, for some reason, no matter what stories I broke, it really, really didn't matter. Once other people got a hold of the stories, it was, it was like it didn't exist. It was no big deal, especially once the playoffs arrived. The feature department, the, feature, the investigative department, and all of these other departments wanted to get their hands in a cookie jar because the Sixers were going to the finals. And I said, this is thankless. It pays less than radio. It pays less than television. And on top of it all, folks steal credit for what you do or they just shove it aside. And I said, so it, 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 it served its purpose for me. I would never change the foundation it provided because it's journalism. And when you learn how to do that stuff, that works profoundly well for you. But I knew that I had reached a pinnacle in my career where it was time to do something else. And more importantly, the news itself was no longer as important. And let me explain what I mean by that. The news matters until you have it. Once you have it, it's not that important anymore because everybody has it. And now what people want to know is what do you feel about it? And for me, it was like everybody had the news inside of five minutes. So now it was time to decipher what were the opinions about it. And then even if you had an opinion, everybody didn't care about your opinion. So you had to establish, you had to establish whether or not you were a personality. Well, what's the best way to establish that you're a personality? Doing radio and television. And so I saw the forest from the trees, and, I, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm a capitalist. I'll be the first to admit that. I'm about getting paid. I, any chance that I get to get paid, as long as I don't compromise my professionalism and my manhood and my blackness, I'll be the first to admit it. As long as I don't compromise those three things, oh, I'm trying to get paid. If you come to me with an option that pays me 90000 or 900000 I'm going to go to 900000 right? That's me. Uh, this is Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse. Uh, you mentioned Allen Iverson. I personally believe that Allen Iverson is one of the greatest players in for inch of all time. Uh, what was it like covering him at the height of his career, and how has the game changed? Well, first of all, Allen Iverson um, – He's the greatest thing that could ever happen to a journalist because he was always a story, whether it was during the season or off season. But Allen Iverson was an absolute blessing and an absolute curse because you were never off when it came to him, ever. There was always something. Um, He was playing. He was getting into it with Coach Brown. Uh, He was dropping 50. He would say something controversial. He'd make a rap video that had former Commissioner David Stern curse him out. Um, he'd get into trouble. He'd get into a fight with his wife. Uh, you know, he was running the streets with his boys. It was always something. And he was an absolute nightmare because there was no such thing as a vacation. Because when you were on vacation, you'd have to get called off because something that happened with Alan Iverson. That's just the way it was with him. But... Um, he and I have a special relationship. Uh, I love him dearly. Uh, his career is over, but he's like a little brother to me. We're very, very tight. And the reason why is because of the relationship we had when I was there. There were times we didn't talk for eight months. 
because of something that I wrote. There were times that I absolutely infuriated him that he wanted he wanted to strangle me. Uh, there were times where, you know, we it, it's just that we butted heads on a lot of different things. But I was the one person in the world that he genuinely trusted. Um, and he knew in his heart of hearts that I was never out to get him or hurt him intentionally. But he knew I was going to do my job. And so, um, you know, it took him a while at times to see that at times. Uh, other times he knew it instantly. Uh, but now that his career is over and I don't have to cover him, uh, he was the most electrifying presence that I've ever had to cover in my life because um, I wasn't there with Jordan in his heyday. I came after um, a little man. I watched this dude do things I never thought I'd see in my life. And on top of it all, you know, he, he trusted me. And I don't, regardless of what I believe my gifts are as a talent in journalism, I have to give credit where credit is due and acknowledge that if it were not for him, I don't know if I would be where I am today because I don't know if I would be as known as I am today uh, because of the amount of stories I had to write on him and the access he entrusted me to give. And so I'm incredibly grateful to him for that. And I I never have forgotten it, and I never will. Hey Stephen A, listen, we're gonna we're gonna let you go, man. Thanks so much. But before we do, uh, one of the things I said leading up to my last question is one of the things I've always appreciated about you is your fight and refusal to back down. Uh, I think the last time is you know ESPN had a bunch of layoffs, and somebody I think began to target you personally, wondering why you and others who just happen to be black <laughs> weren't you know, weren't let go. And I thought that you were um, eloquent in sort of in sort of attacking that. Uh, what was your just approach to that? And just in general, your philosophy about um, sort of fighting, not backing down, and, and sort of taking on uh, taking on people in, in a very unique way. Well, first of all, um, the Bill Rodens, the Mike Wilbons, the Ralph Wileys, the Larry Whitesides, and so many others who have paved the way for people like myself, the Mike Brutons who I used to work with in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, the list goes on and on. There are people who have paved the way for me to get to where I'm at today. And when I go off on folks who come at me, it's in tribute to those people who paved the way for me because it's my way of reminding folks that, I didn't get here by accident, and there was no silver spoon in my mouth. I busted my tail and worked my ass off to get to where I am. And I'm never going to allow anybody to forget that, because to forget that is not only to do an injustice to me, but to those who showed me the way to do it in order to get to where I am today. If you do what I do, folks that will sit here and talk, they can talk all day, all they want to. I have the number one show in the mornings. I have a top-rated show, period, not just in television but in radio. Prior to that, I worked as a high school writer for the New York Daily News, a college and a pro writer where I was promoted nine times at the Philadelphia Inquirer, CNNSI, Fox Sports, ESPN, and it spans now – 23 years. Who the hell gave me anything? No one gave me anything. I'm a black man with a mouth 
coming from an HBCU. I didn't come from Yale or Harvard. I didn't come from Columbia. I didn't come from University of Missouri in Columbia. I didn't come from any of those places. You know what I had to do to get here? And so you'll turn around, and because I raise my voice and I talk a little loud, that's all you got to try and diminish what I have accomplished? You must be on drugs if you think I'm going to let you get away with that. And that's what I'm saying. If, if when you see these guys that are so quick to speak up, the reason why I speak up is for a few reasons. Number one, I dare them to put their credentials up against mine. Number two, I dare them to put the path that they had to take to get to where they are, compare it to mine, and let's see who did what. Number three, let's take into account the pioneers in this business that I previously mentioned who paved the way and showed the path and highlighted the obstacles that I was going to have to endure, go under, around, or leap over to get to where I'm at. And then tell me, how is it that you get to ignore what I accomplished? You know why you ignore it? Because you want to. And it's because you don't want to acknowledge it because you don't like me. And last time I checked, likability don't have anything to do with legitimately judging one's credentials and resume. They don't do it to each other. We can't allow them to do it to us. And I say this. And I don't say this very often publicly to black folks, but I feel very, very adamantly about it. To me, any black person that goes against, I'm not talking about disagreeing with me, because you should do that. I'm not talking about correcting me on something you think I may have done wrong. You should do that. But from a character perspective and from an accomplishment perspective, any black person who tries to diminish or eradicate what I've what I've accomplished is, a, is an absolute fool because if you can do it to me, who can't you do it to in our industry? I came up through their system. We didn't create one for ourselves in order for me to get to where I'm at. I had to toil through that terrain to get to where I am. If you can't appreciate that and use that as tools to springboard yourself to another level, then you ain't paying attention to history and you ain't paying attention to what will come your way in the future. And in that regard, you'll need all the help that you can get. I'm not one of those people. I am where I am because I remember the path and I appreciate those who paved the way for me. And they will always, always have my gratitude, which is why I'm on the phone right now. As much as I appreciate and got love for you youngsters, and I, I, I probably would have done it eventually anyway, there was no hesitation when I was told that Bill Roden needed me because Bill Roden is one of the pioneers. And when he calls, if I can, I come. And that applies to him and any of the pioneers that set the way for me, and it should be for you guys as well. Hey, hey, hey right, Steven, thank you so much, man. All right, take care. All right, man. All right. Our guest has been, our guest was a great Stephen A. Smith, star of First Take and many other things. When we come back, our fellows will leave you with a few things to consider.
Benita Shabazz leads off. Surprise. Racism still exists and can appear in places you least expect. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Taylor Dumpson and Adam Jones. Dumpson was recently elected president of American University Student Government. This is a prestigious school in the nation's capital, and she's the first African-American woman to do so. But this milestone was needlessly turned into a setback the very next day. Someone or some group left bananas hanging from nooses in three places around campus. The words AKA Free and Harambe Bait were etched across them. Whether they considered it a harmless prank or just hate, I am outraged and concerned about the safety of black students on Americans' campus. The very next day, racist words also hurled at Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones. Boston Red Sox fans taunted the player during a game at Fenway Park by calling him the N-word. One fan even threw a bag of peanuts at him. The only punishment the fan received was ejection from the park. This is not the justice that needed to be served. Consider this. Even though it's not always published in the media, it is still happening every day. If you didn't watch the critically acclaimed film, Dear White People, when it came out in 2014, don't worry. Netflix has recently released a series with the same name, written by the same creator, but it's even better. It received a rare 100% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and viewers are demanding a second season. The series takes a deep dive into a fictitious Ivy League school. The focus is on the black students and their relationships with each other, the non-black students on campus, and with the school's administration and faculty. I think the show is brilliant. But not everyone loves the content of the show. Someone ranted on Twitter by asking, what if there was a Dear Black People? Black Twitter clapped back by saying, if there was a such show, it would only contain apologies for the oppression imposed on black people for the last 400 years. I agree. Why shouldn't we voice our opinions on television? There are more people of color acting for TV and streaming services than in Hollywood or on Broadway. Dear White People isn't about making white people feel or look bad. It's about black people at Ivy's and the complexity of our community. Not to mention, it feels like a step toward righting the wrong of black oppression. So, consider this. It's worth watching, whether you like the content or not. Thank you. Paul. Tariq Cohen from North Carolina A&T University. Chad Williams from Grambling State University, Grover Stewart from Albany State University, Jalen Ware from Alabama State University. What do all these young men have in common? They are the four HBCU football players to be drafted by the National Football League this year. At least 15 more HBCU players signed undrafted free agent deals within the league. The first was Grambling State receiver Chad Williams. He was selected by the Arizona Cardinals in the third round. Then came Tariq Cohen, the All-American running back from North Carolina A&T. According to a recent article from The Undefeated by David Squires, he was chosen 119th by the Chicago Bears. Later on, Howard University's offensive lineman, Torre Boyd, got to celebrate. Upon getting the news that he would be signed as an undrafted free agent with the Atlanta Falcons, Boyd tweeted, Anything is possible. You've got to just believe. Hard work speaks for itself. Hashtag mission possible. And that's what it's all about. So consider this. Don't underestimate the academic or athletic programs at HBCUs. It is indeed possible to make it to the pros and get your degree. Dave, thank you very much. And if you have any other questions or comments, you can mail them to rodentfellows at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room.
Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day, What Are Those, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone. We'll be right back.